Well, good evening. Good evening. We've arrived at some of the most challenging but exciting chapters in the Bible. They have produced more commentary, more speculation, and more discussion than almost every other area of the Bible. Daniel 8 is strongly connected to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, but it's also parallel in Daniel 11. This relationship should promote connections in the word rather than dissections. Mm -hmm. Another facet that is often overlooked is that we've all come to view the nearly 400 years between the Testaments as silent years. This is primarily from the lack of prophets during that period of time. What is really interesting is that this common designation is seriously misleading. And it promotes ideas that diminish the connections between the two great testaments of the Bible. The truth is, is that the years are not silent at all. They were foretold in advance. Mm -hmm. The book of Daniel details the major historical events in the biblical world during that period of time. And does it in advance of the events. Wow, come on. This fact is so well attested that it is the basis for most of the criticisms in the academic circles regarding the book of Daniel. The circles of higher critics, supernatural deniers, and faithless academics tend to want to assert that the book of Daniel was written in the second century BC. Their sole motivation for this assertion is based on the accuracy of the events that Daniel foretells in the history of the period following his own lifespan. Mm -hmm. Well, it's sad that so many take this view. It's also reverse validation of the text itself. Yeah. Yeah. The skeptics would not attack the prophecies if they were not so accurate as to provide the proof text for supernatural prophecy. Hmm. The case for the historical accuracy of the prophecies contained in the book of Daniel is simply overwhelming. This awesome truth unintentionally leads us into another potential pitfall that you should be aware of. Since the history is foretold in advance with highly accurate details, it is easy to assume that the text is only referring to the history of that period. This assumption causes even the best of biblical interpreters to have a tendency to look at seven-tenths of the text being fulfilled and then shoehorn in the remaining three-tenths. Just shove it on in there. Our position is that when something is obviously and precisely fulfilled, we should say so Amen. and do it in confidence. Yeah, yeah. But when the details are not precisely fulfilled, mm -hmm. that we should avoid manipulating the data to present mm -hmm. them as fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. When interpreters fall prey to their temptation to assume that all of the text is fulfilled simply because seven out of ten details were fulfilled, their arguments end up being based on strained data that ultimately lessens people's respect for the sacred word of God. Yeah. Wow. So in preparation for the study tonight, we have thoroughly re-examined our own previously held positions. Yeah. Trust us. We've intensively studied other men's work on the subject. We actually surveyed hundreds of commentaries to see what was out there. We have tried to approach these chapters in a spirit of humility that honors a concept laid out in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. I'll be reading from the ESV. Yeah. 
But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. We've come to believe that the phrase run to and fro refers to searching from right to left, back and forth over the biblical text. And that the phrase knowledge shall increase constitutes a promise that the sealed book is being unveiled over time to those who search diligently all the way up to the last days. And that is you and I. Amen. So this seems to point to the idea that the book will be understood in a more accurate fashion by those that diligently search for truth as time moves forward. It would also lend to the idea that many of our previously held positions and well-thought-out commentaries from centuries gone by, they may need to be looked at with a healthy level of skepticism. Ultimately, it may even indicate that this recording will have to be revisited with the spirit of discovery rather than a spirit of defense in the future years. Can you say amen? Amen. The book of Daniel is astounding, and it's also the challenge of a lifetime, but it's also worth devoting a lifetime towards. Amen. Well, saints, we have a good deal to cover with you this evening. Yeah. So at this point... I'm going to pray that God would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in his law. And then we're going to have Booney open up reading (laughs) all the way through the chapter, and then we will dive in line by line. Pray with me. Father, we ask that that same spirit of humility that Daniel demonstrates, Lord, prayerfully and fasting, asking you about what is written in your word, might rise inside of us. Father, we would approach this sacred text with the same kind of capacity, mighty one, that the result would be faithful lives that have increasing revelations. But we thank you for the house that you have built here. Lord, we ask that you would instruct us in the ways of your word, mighty one. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As Jennifer prepares to read this text, I want to remind you all that these notes are online. And that introduction lays out for you interpretive keys. So especially those of you that came in this room as the introduction was happening, you will need to go back and revisit these notes. Because we're going to move quickly tonight, and it will be drinking from a fire hose. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other one, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came up from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had Seen standing beside the canal and charged him at him in a great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, 
and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It, it set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the visions to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man this meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the visions concern the times of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in, in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media, Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from this na his nation, but will not have the same power. In the later part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The visions of the evenings and mornings that have been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted, and I lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Well, we obviously have a uh, mundane and ordinary Bible study this evening, right? No way. Five best that we pick up in verse 1 with Brother Linton, and we begin to set a page, a setting for what we're about to cover. So start in verse 1 for me, Linton. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So the opening line of Daniel 8, verse 1, intentionally connects it to Daniel 7. 
Daniel refers to this vision with the words, after the one that had already appeared to me. It's putting it in series. In our view, this not only establishes the chronology, but it is the beginnings of a conceptual link between the two visions. The fact will become apparent when the content, nomenclature, and themes are taken into account when evaluating both of the chapters and visions. Remember that in the original scroll of Daniel, the two visions would have been read without a chapter break, without a pericope. There would be no divider between them, and they would naturally have been read with an association between them, rather than an implied difference of categories suggested by an inserted chapter break. We're going to begin with you by reviewing the chronology of Daniel's chapters and visions. Now, I know you've seen this before, but it's important that you look at it one more time. The first four chapters are clearly in chronological order. The seventh chapter comes next, and it's followed by our chapter tonight, the eighth chapter. Then comes the fifth, then the ninth, then the sixth, then chapters 10 through 12. The reason that we're pointing that out is that early in Daniel's career, he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This occurred in Daniel 2. The major components of that dream you should have notes on are a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron with feet of iron and clay. We're going to get into those components more as we progress through this chapter and this book. But for now, we want to refresh your minds on the key point of the vision from Daniel 2. It came from Daniel 2, verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, as interesting as all of the intricate details are, the main point of the vision is that a rock that is Messiah, would be cut out of a mountain, which is Israel. This rock would not merely be the work of human reproduction, but the work of God, indicated by the phrase, not by human hands. Now in Daniel 2.34, we were told that the rock struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. And then in Daniel 2.35, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The overwhelming emphasis of the interpretation was about the establishment of a physical kingdom of God on earth through his people Israel. And as the text moved into chapter 3, faithful Jews faced the furnace of affliction but were ultimately delivered in a supernatural fashion. We then encountered Daniel 7, where the major components of Daniel's vision are a lion, a bear, a leopard, and an indescribable beast with iron teeth 
and ten horns. So again, as interesting as the details of the beastly kingdoms were, and they were, the major emphasis was Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you and I were meant to connect the details of these visions so that our biblical hopes would be set on a rock that is Messiah. Amen. And that Messiah would be cut out of a mountain that is Israel. This rock would not be merely the work of human reproduction, but the work of God himself, indicated by the phrase, not by human hands, and the phrase of Daniel 7.13, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So in both chapters, the result was the same. The Messiah would establish a real, physical kingdom over all the earth that would never pass away and never be destroyed. In both cases, the Messiah would be preceded by three kingdoms, say three kingdoms, three Three kingdoms, kingdoms. that the Bible names, and a fourth kingdom that the Bible does not name. The kingdom would decrease, the kingdoms would decrease in their value while they increase in their strength. Mm -hmm. And in both chapters, the Messiah prevails over the Gentile kingdoms after warfare. Thanks. Do you remember what Daniel was preoccupied with? In the seventh chapter. (laughs) It was a little horn with a big blasphemous mouth. Mind you, this was even after seeing the Ancient of Days and the one like the Son of Man. Daniel was concerned about the fourth beast and its little horn. He even described himself as troubled in spirit over what he saw. He saw... The little horn and his actions. And Daniel 7, 21 through 22 specifically says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Verse 22, praise God, goes on to say, Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Daniel 2 is connected with Daniel 7. What we've just done illustrates that. Mm -hmm. And tonight you will see that Daniel 8 covers the same information with even more clarity and detail, but the point remains the same. The statue or the beastly Gentile kingdoms will be conquered by a real physical kingdom of God on earth led by Messiah and the nation of Israel. Amen. Having established that fact, Daniel 7 and 8 zoom in on the figure that is a little horn with a big blasphemous mouth. Shut your dirty little mouth. (laughs) It seems that he's opposed to the process. That he is anti this process. Mm. That he is anti the mission of Christ. This is largely why we use the term anti-Christ. As we move into verse 2, consider what Daniel already knew before the vision took place. 
These details are going to continue to be built upon as chapter 8 progresses and the book of Daniel progresses. So before Daniel 8, Daniel already knew that there were repeating patterns in his visions. In Daniel 2, you see a head of gold. In Daniel 7, that correlates to a lion, and he knows that that is the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel 2, that moves on to the chest and arms of silver, which correlate to the bear he saw in Daniel 7, and he knows that that is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Then we move from the arms of silver in the chest to the belly and thighs of bronze. That correlates to the leopard in his vision, and he knows that that is the kingdom of Greece. Then from there we go to the legs of iron, the feet of iron, and the clay. That correlates to the indescribable beast with iron teeth and ten horns. This is the kingdom that Daniel does not know exactly what it is. And this is where we're about to, about to dig in. Interpreters don't either. <laughs> so pick it up in verse 2. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, Daniel seems to have gone to sleep while he's in Babylon, and the time frame is given as the third year of Belshazzar's reign, which would mean that we're at least three years, and we're maybe even as many as 11 years before Medo-Persia comes into power at the time of this vision. So during Daniel's dream, he saw himself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai Canal. Now this location is important because it comes under the control of the Persians and even becomes their capital during the reign of Darius Histapes and would continue to be so until they were conquered by the Greeks about 200 years later. The book of Esther takes place under Medo-Persian rule in the same location and it features many of the same thematic associations. For example, an evil Haman that wants to destroy God's people, but is ultimately undone by faithful Jews. Amen. Incredible. Now, this is also the city that Nehemiah begins in, where faithful Jews build the temple in spite of the severe opposition that they're facing. Okay, so we have a slide to help you visualize where Daniel sees himself. Now, you're both going to want to take photos of this map as well as a mental picture because this is the landscape in which Daniel is happening. Susa is almost directly east of Babylon by a distance of about 230 miles. So from Babylon on the left or on the western side, move east 230 miles, and you will be standing in Susa, which is where Daniel is seeing himself. It's also southwest of Iran. So south and west of Iran. And you're, that's going to be really important as we move forward in the text. It's in southwest Iran. Or it's in southwest, yeah. Okay. Southwest Iran. Brother Linton, let's look at verse 3. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. So bearing in mind the slide that you just saw would be the capital of the empire that we're discussing. We could spend a lot of time here telling you all of the reasons that this is an apt description of the Medo-Persian Empire. We could tell you that scholars like Kyle and DeLich document the ram as the guardian spirit of (laughs) Medo-Persia, 
that the Persian kings wore the ram as an emblem on their heads when going into battle. Whoa. But really, what is the point? The angel Gabriel clearly identifies the ram in verse 20 of this chapter as Medo-Persia. Yeah. In fact, it says the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medo-Persia. Yeah. So I think it's best that we continue reading and we emphasize some areas of the text tonight that you may not understand so clearly. Pick up in verse 4. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, since we're not agricultural people these days, I mean, we wear the clothing, but we drive trucks, <laughs> I thought we would show you an emblem for Medo-Persia. The text specifically says that Medo-Persia attacked to the west, attacked to the north, attacked to the south. This is what a ram looks like, even from that area. The Medo-Persian Empire's power base was in the eastern areas of the biblical world. And they advanced in all directions from their power base. They advanced to the west, they advanced to the north, and they advanced to the south. Here's a slide to help you envision what Daniel is seeing. In the region of Elam, which is a son, of, a grandson of Noah, we have the Medo-Persian Empire. And you should envision that ram facing from the eastern side of the biblical map, everything to his west. That's what the text describes. Remember, Daniel is seeing this at least three years before it has begun, and it's going to continue for 200 years. Wow. It's not like in two years they went and did these things. It was over two centuries that they did these things. This is one of the many reasons that Daniel is continually panned by supernatural deniers. <laughs> they simply cannot accept that Daniel accurately foresaw the future. What is really crazy? Are y'all ready for it? Yeah. We believe that he's all much further into the future than 200 years. Yeah. And we're going to demonstrate that tonight. Yeah. All right, let's pick up in verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a ghost with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. All right. Can you guys do this with us? Can you imagine what it must have been like for Daniel to see this? You know, the Hebrew is specific about this being a male goat, but it seemed to almost fly crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. That's pretty crazy. Now, the phrase whole earth in the Hebrew is kal ha-aretz, and kal, or kol, is used over 5,400 times in the biblical text. Now, any good Bible lexicon will tell you that it means all or whole. The next word has a much broader scope, though. Aretz is 776 in the Strong's number, or Eretz is its root, is used more than 2,500 times, and it can mean a range of things. It can mean the whole planet, it could mean the region, or it can mean the land, like the actual earth, the ground. You can verify that in a good Bible lexicon. The good news is that you will not have to do that. The text itself is going to define the phrase by context in the coming verses. Verse 6. 
He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. Ooh. So the male goat doing the attacking, as interesting as it is, it's not something that we have to go into great depth in order to interpret. Again, the angel Gabriel tells us plainly in verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Plain as day. As testament to the authenticity of Daniel's experience, we need to point out something that most of you will not have contemplated in your own research as you read these chapters. The text does not really say Greece. The word Greece is not in the text. It actually says Yavan, which is Strong's number 3120 in the Hebrew. If you remember, chapter 7 was Aramaic, but in chapter 8 we're back in the Hebrew. Remember? Thank God. So that is because Greece did not really exist at the time of Daniel's prophecy, guys. Wow, he's receiving a prophecy of a kingdom that didn't exist in his time. There were people in the region and the beginnings of organized city-states, but there was no real kingdom that could be called Greece. So the history of the region and period is voluminous, but we prepared a slide to point you in the right direction. Yeah. This is from the Erdman himself, Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible. Follow along with the slide. The 5th century is generally considered the period when Greece, particularly Athens, reached its greatest height of political power and cultural achievement. But this was not until it had faced its greatest national challenge up to that time, the Persian invasion during the early 5th century. Now in 478 to 477, an anti-Persian alliance was formed called the Delian League, since it was headquartered on the island of Delos. Athens assumed leadership of this league and built an empire, demanding tribute from its Greek allies and asserting its military might to enforce Athenian interests. The great temples of the Athenian Acropolis were built during this period. In various ways, the temples celebrate victory over the invading Persians. For example, the Greek versus barbarians theme of the Parthenon work and the temple of Athena, Nike, meaning victory. Hmm. This is profound on many levels. The kingdom that would be called Greece didn't really exist at the time that Daniel saw the vision. Our God is an extraordinary king. The primary impetus for the organizing of the peoples of the region that would become Greece was Persian advancements into their lands. So Daniel foresaw the rise of the Medo-Persians before it happened and the resulting conflict with the people of Yavan that would form an alliance and become Greece as a result. This is also the genesis of an East versus West rivalry that continues to shape our own cultural perceptions to this day. Mm -hmm. We are taught about the Spartans defending the Persians are defeating the Persians at Thermopylae. We are taught about the Battle of Marathon. We are taught to see history from a Western or Greek perspective that sees power emanating from Greek culture as superior to those of the East. This is just a reality about our culture. This can be problematic, though, given that the Bible itself is an Eastern book. 
We would love to tell you about the effects of this Western superiority on a geopolitical and biblical interpretation level, but that's beyond our scope for this evening. For now, just make a note that the Persian Empire could rightly be viewed as more impressive. Somebody say more impressive. More impressive. Than the Greek or Roman Empire, by far, with an honest analysis that is free from bias. Yeah. Look, we're tempted to go through that with you, and time's not going to permit. But the Persians were the first to free slaves. The Persians were the first to guarantee workers pay. The Persians occupied four, far more territory, square mile-wise, than the Romans ever did. What we are seeing is that Daniel has foreseen the kingdom that would come that is Medo-Persia, and the kingdom that doesn't exist but would form because of advancements of Medo-Persia to defend themselves. That is incredible. Yeah. We want to continue on the development of Greece with you for a minute, though. Are you all interested? Yes. We have another slide for you. Dynamic political and cultural forces continue to work in the 4th century. No dominant political power emerged until Philip II of Macedon who was 382 to 336. He attempted to unite politically the quarrelsome and divided Greek states. It was also at this time that Athens secured its reputation as the seat of philosophy through the writing and teaching of Plato, the most famous student of Socrates and Aristotle, the most famous student of Plato. So a new era began with the career of Philip's son, Alexander III. Greece really began to be a kingdom that you could refer to as a kingdom in the time of Philip II of Macedon. And it was solidified under his son, Alexander, whom world history re would regard as Alexander the Great. Yeah. Remember that Daniel is seeing this vision between 550 and 542 B.C., yeah. wow. 550s versus early 300s. Wow. And not only is Greece not a kingdom, but also Alexander wouldn't rise to power for 200 years. Yeah. Wow. All right, let's talk about the Hellenistic period. We're going to switch so you can see on your screen. The Hellenistic period is from 323 B.C.E. to 31 B.C.E. The successful military campaigns of Alexander the Great, his campaign was from 356 to 323, which pushed east as far as India, radically changed the political and cultural character of the Mediterranean world. Initially, Alexander intended to avenge the hardships suffered by the Greeks during the Persian invasions of the early 5th century. As a student of Aristotle, Alexander knew and embraced Greek culture and disseminated it along with Greek language throughout his vast empire. This spread of Greek-like ways throughout the period yields the name Hellenistic, which means Greek-like. Alexander accomplished this in part by founding many Greek city-states where large numbers of Greco-Macedonian veterans settled after serving in the army. Now, Alexander's death in 323 ignited a complex struggle for power among his successors named as the Diodaci. So needless to say, 
Daniel foresaw the emergence of the most dramatic political and cultural force that acted upon the Middle East centuries in advance of their arrival. Goodness gracious. Now that we have that covered, let's revisit some of the components of the vision, shall we? Check out this slide on Greece, or as the text describes it, Yavon. So what we know from the vision is that they attacked from the west and crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, that is personified as that shaggy goat right there, right? That's a great looking goat. So Daniel saw what would become Greece attacking from the west, charging in a great rage at the ram that is Medo-Persia. Now, at the time of the vision, Daniel could only refer to what would be Greece as Yavon. Yavon is actually a grandson of Noah, and he's identified in Genesis chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. Check it out. So we have another slide on Yavon. In Hebrew, Yavon, or Greek, Yovon. (laughs) The fourth son of Noah's, uh, the fourth son of Noah's son, Japheth, and the father of Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Rodanim, according to the table of nations in Genesis 10. And it's parallel genealogy in 1 Chronicles 1, 5-7. The land of Yavon is to be identified originally with Ionia, an area of Greek settlement in southwest Asia Minor. Later, the name was expanded to describe the entire Greek population on both sides of the Aegean Sea. So in Daniel's vision, he was standing in Susa, which is modern Iran, Iran, and saw a male goat flying across the whole earth from the area of Yavon, or western Turkey. Mm -hmm. And here's what it looks like on a map. You guys interested? You guys can see on the screen, we're going to work through it just a little bit together to make sure we grasp it. To the left is our shaggy goat, western side of the map. You see in the very center there, there's a red box. Can you guess what nation that is? Then all the way over to the right, where you see Elam and the Ram, is Susa. So what he's seeing is the two polar opposite ends of the biblical world. That's what the Bible calls the whole earth. And I, I want you to understand something. Greece is not on the map. Wow. There was not a way to identify Greece. It's not just not on the map by name. It's not on the map because it's outside of the biblical world. It's not till they enter into Yavon that there's something you could call it. The Bible defines the world based on where the sons and grandsons of Noah settled. So to revisit this, the cow or the coal, ha, eretz, is this. You're looking at it. The phrase that means the whole earth is from the shaggy goat to the ram. That's how it's defined biblically. Guys, the Bible is a Middle Eastern book, which we touched on just a minute ago, but we often don't realize the ways in which our worldview needs to shift Mm -hmm. to the Bible. Amen. And it does not tend to have powers north of the Black Sea in view, which would be up there at the top of Turkey, like Russia or anything beyond it. Interesting. It's not as if it's impossible for a power like Europe to be at play. It's just not in the view of the Middle East. 
We're not saying that these things couldn't have some vague reference and association with moving of troops and powers, but it's not in the view of the vision that Daniel is having because the actual geographic borders are defined within the vision to the left and to the right of your screen. Secondly, the western edge of the biblical world was the Aegean Sea in the area of Yavan on the left-hand side of your screen, or Turkey. And the eastern edge was the area of Elam, or Iran, over by the ram on the screen. Daniel saw these two areas in an incredible clash. The two ends of the biblical world clashing against one another, struggling for power. History bears the accuracy of Daniel's vision out in great detail. And sometimes these kinds of things even repeat in history and through history. Mm -hmm. You will see that we believe these things were fulfilled in history, but it's worth contemplating the extent to which we may see them repeat as a pattern in our future. Now, we're not going to get into that now, because our position will become clear as we continue through the text itself. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 7. As, as Mr. Linton gets ready to read verse 7, I, I just want to draw your attention to an interaction that I've had many times in Israel and that Justin recently had with one of his Hebrew teachers. When you look at that map, we're going to call it all night, the Middle East. But understand, in the Bible, it's not the Middle East. It's the center of the map. The reason that we refer to it as the Middle East is because we have a West-East rivalry that goes all the way back to Greece, where we view... Anything to the east is barbaric and backwards, and us as superior. That literally extends right out of Greek culture, and it shows up even in our terms. Now, this is not a politically sensitive class. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we need to recenter our prophetic eye on where God says his eye is. This is not the Middle East. It's the center of God's eye. That's a good word. Thank you, man. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. Wow. Aside from the astounding precision of Daniel's vision that we've been speaking about, there is an obvious and a humorous element in the depiction. Consider these two images. On the left, you see what we affectionately call a super goat. (laughs) Versus a ram on the right. I want to talk to you about it while you're staring at them. We've come to view this male goat as a kind of super goat. Not only does he fly across the whole earth, but he also takes on a much larger animal, a ram. This reminds me of a small Nissan pickup and a Dodge Ram. (laughs) Except that the goat defeats him. In the animal world, this would never happen because of the disparity in the physique of these two animals alone. We imagine this captured Daniel's attention. Not to mention, he was flying. That probably caught his attention too. (laughs) The goat became very great. But at the height of its power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So this is where the prophecy gets even more interesting. It is possible that these horns grew up to the four cardinal directions. 
And it is also possible that this is a reference to four spiritual entities in heaven. We discussed this last week. Let's recap a little of Alexander's life, though, and then we will get into those subjects. So at the age of 20 years old, Alexander had assumed the mantle of his father, Philip of Macedonia. By 26 years old, he had conquered the mighty Persian Empire. And by the age of 30, his empire stretched from the Mediterranean to the Hindu Kush in India. And he died at the age of 32. Quite an impressive career. More impressive, he died of COVID, according to the CDC. (laughs) (laughs) Got the goat. Previously, no one could escape from the ram's power. And we saw that in verse 4. Now, no one could escape from the super goat. And you see that in verse (laughs) 7. The goat was enraged, according to verse 6, at the Persians for the incursions into the territory of Yavan or Greece. Now, Alexander quickly conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Mesopotamia in only a handful of years, beginning at 334 B.C. The greatness that had characterized the ram now belonged to the goat. Look, Alexander was only 32 years old when he died, and most believe that it was from drunkenness or poisoning. Ask Pasaki, she'll tell you. (laughs) However, history records his death in Babylon, 11 years into his military conquests. As soon as the goat was elevated to great power, his large single horn was broken off, and in its place, four notable ones are mentioned. All right, so we have another slide for you. After Alexander's death, Four notable ones are mentioned. This slide is entitled, The Four Kingdoms of the Diadachi. Check it out here. On the very left, the very west of your screen, that green area, that belonged to Cassander. The orange area, just right of that, is Lysimachus. The yellow area, that dominant area there in the center and to the east, is Seleucus. And the blue area in the southwest quadrant of the screen is Ptolemy's. So we say notable, as in notable ones, because the text says prominent, or in some translations it says conspicuous. History records more than four generals that succeeded Alexander. Everybody got that? History itself actually records not four generals, but more than that. In historical accounts. And the list of the four that formed his successors, this list of four has actually varied throughout history until recent times. Very shaky territory. But we want to draw your attention to Gabriel's interpretation because this is key to your understanding. And it's found in verse 22. You're going to get a revelation here. So the four prominent horns represent four kingdoms. Daniel 8.22 says the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms. Kingdoms. What do they represent? Four kingdoms. Four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Daniel has consistently seen three sections of a statue or three beasts that represent known historical kingdoms followed by... (laughs) 
A fourth, that remains unspecified in the biblical text. The third animal that we have been discussing is the super goat. However, the four horns that arise after the prominent horn is broken off, the super goat, are called kingdoms. Kingdoms. Kingdoms that emerge from his nation. Now, we understand that they are part of Yavon, called Greece, but they are also specified as kingdoms and are differentiated from his nation. Specifically, by the words kingdom and the phrase, will not have the same power. Which, in our mind, makes them something different than just the nation of the super goat. Did y'all catch that? Yeah. Yeah. Good, because we're going to be talking about it a lot tonight because your Bible notes are wrong. (laughs) So our suggestion is that these kingdoms are viewed as regional kingdoms, entirely separated, but broken up into these four regions. Let's throw that map back on the screen for a moment. Guys, can you see this breakup? These are independent powers that are not friendly. That are not on the same team. They're separate kingdoms from one another, just as Daniel described. Remember, each of these Gentile beastly nations has already been named except the fourth, which is unnamed in the text. Now, if we're right, then this means that the following super goat nation of Greece, the Middle East was then divided into four regional (coughs) kingdoms that would serve as a transition Mm. to the fourth unnamed terrifying beast, and provided some geographic indicators as to where the fourth kingdom would arise from. Our eyes are on the two strongest of the regional kingdoms. Can you see some of the disparity in land mass up there? The Ptolemies in blue and the Seleucids in yellow. We even think that they may be what is indicated in Daniel 2 by belly and thighs, two of them, of of bronze. The belly would correspond to the super goat and his prominent horn, while the two thighs of bronze would be the strongest two regional kingdoms, the Ptolemies in blue and the Seleucids in yellow. So the Ptolemies and the Seleucids battled frequently with one another. And this would be in our view again in Daniel 11. But interestingly, Daniel 8 and chapter 11 both seem to contain a mixture of strongly verifiable historical detail and details that clearly have not happened and must be future events. Mm-hmm. you get verse 9? Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now you can guess who the beautiful land is, because that's where God's eye is, right? Yeah. 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 Given that Daniel 8 starts with a connection to Daniel 7, it is impossible for us to not relate this small horn with the little horn of Daniel 7. The small horn of Daniel 8 and the little horn of Daniel 7. We'll explain this as we move forward, but it's essential that you are putting some of these details together, so we put it on a slide. The first kingdom addressed was Babylon and was described as both a head of gold and a lion. Do you see that on the second line on your slide? Yes. The second kingdom was addressed as Medo-Persia and was described as both a silver chest and arms 
as well as a lopsided bear and a two-horned ram. The third kingdom, you see third kingdom on the screen? Yes. The third kingdom was Greece, described as a bronze belly and two thighs, as well as a leopard with multiple heads. And finally, a super goat with a broken horn, followed by four regional kingdoms. We are suggesting that the fourth kingdom's two legs of iron will grow out of two of the regional divisions in the Middle East represented as bronze thighs. Okay. This concept is strengthened by the descriptions of the little horn with the big mouth in Daniel 7 and the small horn in Daniel 8 that comes from one of the regional divisions. We're going to reread Daniel 8, 9, and we're going to do it so that you can start to put this together, and then we're going to stay on top of that topic. <coughs> Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. So this verse indicates that out of one of these four regional kingdoms will come a small horn. We have already said that it seems apparent to us that we were meant to connect this small horn with the little horn of Daniel 7. This would mean that the first, second, third, and fourth beasts in Daniel's visions all rise out of the Middle East and none rise out of Europe. Moreover, the historical figure that is usually associated with this small horn is a man named Antiochus IV called Epiphanes. He is the eighth king of the Seleucid or Syrian dynasty, as it is known, that ruled... What what was that? (laughs) He was called what? Assyrian! Wow. So the Seleucid and Syrian dynasty is synonymous in the texts, in historical texts. And it ruled the largest section of the biblical world. Take a look at this slide. We're going to put that map up. And on the left side of this map, we actually have highlighted those eight successors, those eight kings within the Seleucid kingdom. The first one starting with Seleucus at the top. And then at the bottom is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The case is so strong for Antiochus being the small horn that he has managed to fool many of the best biblical interpreters. You guys get that? Yeah. (laughs) Interpreters throughout history have been fooled by the case of Antiochus because maybe he gets 7 out of 10 correct in history, right? We are not going to take the time necessary to espouse views that are incorrect. But we do want to acknowledge that the details you undoubtedly have copious notes about in your own study Bibles, in your lap, they're mostly right. Antiochus fulfilled many of the aspects of Daniel 8. Let's go through a list of what it looks like to be mostly right. Antiochus did grow to become exceedingly great. He did go into the beautiful land. He did take away the daily offerings. He did defile the sanctuary. Antiochus did throw truth to the ground. He was a stern-faced king. 
He did destroy many holy people. Antiochus did cause deceit to prosper. He did consider himself <coughs> superior. And it could even be said that Antiochus made the people feel secure before causing destruction. Now, we could tell you that Antiochus thought he was God manifest, mm -hmm. or that he killed a pig on the altar and outlawed Judaism, or that the Jews intentionally mispronounced his name, Epiphanes, as Epimanes, which means madman. But our problem is not that Antiochus did all these things. Our problem is the things that Antiochus did not do. We do not think it is wise to see many fulfilled details and then ignore or shoehorn in the details that clearly do not fit. Since you're probably in shock, of what you just heard, let's take a minute to talk about double fulfillment or near and far fulfillment. And you should already be familiar with this biblical feature from our studies in Jeremiah. Yeah. Ultimately, prophecy is about repeating patterns that all point to an ultimate fulfillment on the day of the Lord or in Christ. We're going to pause here for a second as uh, we pick up in this theme. What we want you to know is that your life application study Bibles, whatever it is that you have in your lap. We do not disagree, disagree with many of the historical fulfillments that Antiochus did. That's, that is not a problem. I've read Maccabees more than most of you in this room. The issue is that everyone wants to ignore the things that he did not do that are specified in the text. And they have various motives for that, We'll get into some of them, but not many. We would rather just point you to what is right. And what you're going to have to do is stop reading those notes for a minute, and you're going to have to pay attention to this next scripture string. Because if you can't grasp this, then you will not grasp <coughs> biblical interpretation at all. Say, so on the topic of near and far fulfillment, repeating patterns through prophecy, we're going to begin in the law. In Genesis 3... Verses 14 through 15. Y'all ready? Yeah. Yes. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Hmm. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Saints, I don't know any serious Christians that believe that these verses solely concern a literal snake. We'd have to be pretty obtuse and not have read much of your Bible to take that view. Yeah, yeah. These verses serve us as a great launching point for the principle that we're discussing tonight. We have a slide for you on Genesis 3. This comes from Dake's Annotated Reference Bible. In these and many other passages, a visible creature is addressed. But the certain statements also refer to an invisible person using the visible creature as a tool. Mm. Thus, two persons are involved in the same passage. Yep. The principle of interpretation in such passages is to associate only such statements with each individual as could refer to him. That's important. The statements of Genesis 3... Verse 14 could apply only to the serpent and not to Satan. Yeah. The first part of Genesis 3, 15 could apply to both the seed of the serpent and Satan. 
The last part of Genesis 3.15 could only refer to Satan and Christ. A simple example of this law is the case of Christ addressing Peter as Satan. When Peter declared that he would never permit anyone to crucify his Lord on the cross, Christ rebuked him saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's exhibited in Matthew 16, 22-23. Both Satan and Peter were addressed in the same statement. And both were involved in the rebuke. Peter, for the moment, was no unknowingly being used as a tool of Satan in an effort to keep Christ from going to the cross. Now, Satan was the primary one being addressed. It's the same way in Genesis 3.15. A literal serpent is addressed, but the primary reference is to the invisible one that had a role in it, Satan. The first book and the last book of the Bible connect those things. Read Revelation 12. He tells you directly who this serpent is. Let's move to the prophets. Okay, This is one that will be fun. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. And will give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel. Yay, Jesus. I don't know very many Christians that deny this verse speaks of the virgin birth of Jesus. They would have to find new Christmas cards. (laughs) You would have to ignore the newer testament quotation of this verse that directly attributes Isaiah 7.14 to the birth of Jesus in the book of Matthew. However... Isaiah was clearly speaking of his own son and circumstances that were immediate to his present time. We have another slide for you that will summarize this well. It is definite that Isaiah 14 applies to the virgin-born Messiah who was yet to come. See references. And since Isaiah 7, 15 and 16 refer to Isaiah's son, as a sign to Ahaz regarding both kings being destroyed in a short time, it is only proper that we make the two prophecies of distinct coming events. One immediate and the other remote or in the future. This is a clear example of the law of prophetic perspective. Seeing more than one event at the same time like one standing on a high mountain would see many peaks in the distance without seeing the valleys between them. If one will recognize this when reading many prophetic passages, a more clear understanding of them will be the result. (laughs) So as troubling as this can be for the Western engineer, the Western-minded person, the fact remains that it is a staple of biblical language, motif, and prophetic speech. We're talking about prophecy as a whole through the Bible. Now consider Zechariah 12, and this is going to be a good one for you guys because this is a favorite passage for so many people in this room, and it's a familiar passage that we're going to dig into, but I promise you're going to see something you have never seen about this verse. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. 
So the context of Zechariah is clearly, say clearly. Clearly. It is clearly at the coming of the Lord, the last day. And yet John applies this verse to the crucifixion of Jesus. Check out John 19, 35 through 37. We're going to read this a little slowly so you can get it. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe it. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Hmm. So clearly it is settled, right? Zechariah was wrong. wrong. It's not about the coming of the Lord in the last day. And the Apostle John was right. Except that the same Apostle John applied it again to the coming of the Lord in the book of Revelation. Oh my goodness. So the Apostle John in John 19 applied it to the crucifixion. And then when writing Revelation chapter 1, applies it to the second coming. Let's go ahead and just read Revelation 1-7 together. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Amen. Now, these types of double fulfillment of the same passage is applied by the Apostle John to both the first and the second comings of the Lord. So if this were not a sound method of biblical interpretation why did the lord's most beloved apostle use it no it's definitely sound method of biblical interpretation now we could show you exactly the same thing regarding isaiah 61 and luke's quotation we could additionally read isaiah 14 and ezekiel 28 that both address an existing king And yet, both passages go way beyond the scope or sphere of the king to address the actual spiritual entities associated with the king. But, for time's sake, we're going to move on to the writings. Are you all with us so far? Yes! God introduced the concept by speaking in Genesis 3.15. It's God who first applied a prophecy to more than one entity, one physical that he could see and one that we could not see. The Apostle John applied the very same passage to the first coming of the Lord as the second coming of the Lord. There's at least 2,000 years between those events. Okay? So we have a slide to help us work through the writings. I'm going to be reading the top left and then the coinciding one to the right. So in Psalm 2-2, it's clearly speaking about David's present day, the first coming, and ultimately the millennium. Acts 4.26 applies this verse to Jesus' first coming, with the inference on the rest of the context as well. Psalm 8 is clearly speaking about mankind's dominion beneath the angels, but over the earth. Hebrews 2 applies this passage directly to one man, Jesus. The passage had a near and far meaning. Psalm 22 clearly refers to troubling events in David's day. The Gospels apply the same statements at the cross. Psalm 41.9 clearly refers to David's enemies. John 13.18 applies them to Judas and his betrayal. Psalm 69.4 clearly refers to those who hated David without reason. 
John 15, 25 applies this as fulfilled in Jesus' detractors, or Jesus' detractors. Psalm 69, 25 clearly refers to an enemy of David. Acts 1, 20 applies this as fulfilled in Judas when it says, may his place be deserted. Guys, the Bible is literally replete with prophecies that had near-time historical fulfillment, but a more full realization in future time. Yeah, yeah. So what you see on the screen in Psalm 22, David really did have trouble in his day. It was historically fulfilled what he wrote about it, but that wasn't the fullest realization of what he wrote. This is because biblical prophecy is establishing patterns of fulfillment. Come on. We will not go back through Jeremiah 50 and 51 and illustrate the near-time fulfillment of the fall of Babylon versus the future-time fulfillment of the doom of Babylon. Yeah. We do commend you to your notes, though. If you don't understand this principle, you will not get very far in biblical interpretation. Antiochus Epiphanes was a near-time Fulfillment. Yes. But we believe that he falls short of the full fulfillment that will be found in the Antichrist yeah. that will emerge out of the Middle East in the same area. Look, so with that in mind, we're going to get back to our text, and it will become apparent as you read about the details of the small horn. That's good. Ten. Yeah. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and jumped on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Those are some pretty uh, impressive verses, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. As we've already said... A solid case can be made for Antiochus Epiphanes having fulfilled these verses. I'll give you a few hints. It requires you to read Host of Heavens as Armies of Israel. Hmm. It requires you to read Starry Host as Armies of Israel. It requires you to read Set Itself Up to Be as Great as the Prince of the Host as a general defiance of the Commander of the Armies of Israel. It requires you to read Sanctuary Brought Low as defilement. And it requires you to read the phrase, Truth Thrown to the Ground, as a general defiance of truth. All of these positions are defendable. In fact, we agree with many of them. Although we are already starting to feel like they may be straining the data at least a little bit. <laughs> the biggest issues are definitely yet to come. So to be clear, every one of these verses may apply to Antiochus Epiphanes alone. Of course, they may apply to both Antiochus and the Antichrist as well. And in some cases, they may apply to the Antichrist alone. As we keep reading, we're going to point this out to you because it makes an extraordinary difference in the way that you read the rest of your Bible. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? It's a good question. Yeah, it is. The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation. I didn't hear that. <laughs> the rebellion that causes desolation. Wow, okay. And the surrender of the sanctuary 
and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. All right, so we're going to begin to pick this apart. And we're going to begin with the phrase, the rebellion that causes desolation. Are you guys with us? Antiochus did in fact desolate the temple and cause a rebellion. He did that. So the matter is settled then. This speaks of Antiochus. Sorry. Well then there is, you know that one thing Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12 through 21. Okay. Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one go on the housetop. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Guys, Jesus came almost 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes desolated the temple. Antiochus also did so in the winter and on the Sabbath. He did those things, and yet Jesus referred to the event that we are reading about in Daniel and told us that it would be in the future. He also said, let the reader understand. What is he speaking about there? He's saying, let the reader of Daniel's prophecy understand. He expected that we would be familiar with these things. And then he referred us to a future event. More than that, this event would be unequaled from the beginning of the world until Jesus' day and never to be equaled again. So needless to say, this presents a formidable problem for those that see Antiochus as the total fulfillment of Daniel 8. We believe that Antiochus just represents a near and partial fulfillment while the prophecy actually points to a future and total fulfillment. All right. So we're going to layer this for you. We're going to go to Mark 13 now. We're going to start in verse 12 and read through 19. And we're going to read Mark's version of this interaction with Jesus. Verse 12 says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Verse 14. When you see, i.e. future event, something that is going to happen. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women 
and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter. Wow, that's interesting. Because those, who, those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So you can see here that Mark also records Jesus speaking of this desolation as a future event. Even though Mark, Matthew, and Jesus were well aware of Antiochus Epiphanes' activities during the Hasmonean period. It is also notable that the phrase, flee to the mountains, it's a reoccurring refrain in the books of the Maccabees. And it refers to the time of Antiochus. And yet, Jesus, Matthew, and Mark still point us toward a future event. Right. Let's look at Luke's account. This is Luke 21, 17 through 24. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Mm. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Wow. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So if Matthew's record wasn't enough for you, then perhaps Mark's record was. And if that wasn't enough, then praise his name, you have Luke's record. And if you're still not convinced, wait, there's more. Because there's that thing that the Apostle Paul said as well in 2 Thessalonians 2. Oh, come on. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion... What? Yeah. Rebellion? Until the rebellion occurs there it is. and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What a passage of the Tanakh did Paul draw on to get this revelation? What could he possibly have in mind? What passage in the Tanakh specifically mentions a rebellion that causes desolation? Thanks. Ah, that's right. <laughs> Daniel 8, verse 13, which we just read. Oh, wow. Now, briefly in review, Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul all place this event in their future, yeah. fully knowing about the time frame of the Mace Maccabees and Antiochus, even quoting parts of it, mm -hmm. and saying it is still future tense. Wow. 
So while we agree that Antiochus Epiphanes was definitely a near-time fulfillment of the prophecy, Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul all place the complete fulfillment in the future. You know, maybe that's why the Apostle John made this statement in 1 John 2.18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. John said that many have come and the Antichrist is coming. I wonder what John was talking about. (laughs) Well, to start with, he was writing more than two centuries after Antiochus. And he was writing about two decades after the Roman event in AD 70 where Titus defiled the temple. So we would say that he was aware of many antichrists that had come. Amen. But still pointed us towards the ultimate example contained in Daniel 7 and 8's little or small horn. Let's reread Daniel 8, 13 through 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Look, in light of what the Newer Testament says, Antiochus is not the total fulfillment of verse 13 and can only be viewed as a near and partial fulfillment. But when you come to verse 14, yeah, 14. When, we, when we center around verse 14, uh-huh. Antiochus' career really falls entirely short of this facet of the prophecy, and it is a really big one. Yeah. By the way, so do the Romans, but we'll stick with this. <laughs> verse 14 says... It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. You would not believe the twisting and contorting that occurs among interpreters to shoehorn this detail into the life and career of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's ridiculous. The first revolves around, the first lie revolves around whether or not an actual 2,300 days is meant or if it should be taken to mean only 1,150 days, 1,150 morning sacrifices, and then 1,150 evening sacrifices. You see, the argument goes like this. Since the Jews sacrificed in the morning and the evening, even though it says the vision will be fulfilled in 2,300 mornings and evenings, what they really mean is... 1150 days because there were two sacrifices each day well let's consider that point of view a little bit you guys want to do that dive into this slide with us so is it 2300 days or 1150 morning and evening sacrifices right out of the gate we just want to we just want to show you it is 24 hour days and not 1150 days So C.F. Kyle, he is a renowned Hebrew scholar. He actually devoted nine pages 
to this one issue. And he concluded that 2,300 days is meant. Listen to his argument. His argument summarized is that the phrase evenings and mornings would have been clearly understood as referring to a single day, right? Well, yeah. And a Hebrew reader could not possibly understand it to mean anything other than 2,300 days. Kyle points out that in Old Testament usage, an evening and morning specified a complete day. That makes sense, right? Look at this next paragraph. It gets even better. This is the usage throughout the entire first chapter of the Bible. In fact, describing the first week of creation. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Yeah, awesome. Genesis 1.5. It is the same usage during the flood, wherein we have 40 days and 40 nights. That's in Genesis 7. And so also is the phrase, three days and three nights, used to simply refer to three days, as in Jonah 1.17, or by Jesus in Matthew 12.40. And finally, my favorite one, Matthew 4.2. We read that after Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Jesus fasted 40 days, guys. It was not 20, and it certainly was not 80. It was 40 days. Guys, just to put this in practical terms quickly, you say I worked hard all day. What you mean is you made me put in eight hours. This is a Hebrew way of saying a 24-hour total day. Like saying I worked... All day and all night. You mean I actually completed a 24-hour circle. Yeah, by the way, we actually considered all of these points of views, every point of view that um, was espoused. So we actually seriously considered the 1150-day idea, even though it's not supported linguistically. We still dove into it and seriously considered it and researched it. Look at this next slide as a sampling of what we found. Okay, so this is 2,300 evenings and mornings taken as 1,150 days. The 1,150-day theory faces insuperable obstacles. Foremost among these obstacles is the time frame of Antiochus, Antiochus' acts of desolating the temple. In December of 167 BC, Antiochus' men set up an altar to Zeus in the temple just over three years later. Just over three years later, he died on December 14, 164. This simply doesn't equate to exactly 1,150 days, falling short by around 60 days. So most commentators admit this point and simply say it was uh, very close. Close enough. Thanks for us, close does not merit straining the data to make it fit a given narrative that we've already decided. Yes, right. We want to honestly interact with the text. Yeah. So when we went through the other direction and examined the 2,300 literal days fulfillment as a possibility in Antiochus's career. Here's a sampling that we're going to work through together slowly. There are three individuals at play here. So our first one is from Stephen R. Miller. Miller takes this view, 2,300 days in Antiochus's career. Placing the beginning point of the 2,300 days with the murder of Onionus III, the former high priest. So he starts it not with the sacrifices ending, but with the death of a priest earlier on. Okay. And Gleason Archer examined Miller's work 
and he said this about what Miller had written. Okay? Each of these guys are scholars commenting on each other's theories. And they're usually nice to each other. <laughs> usually. There is not the slightest historical ground <laughs> for a terminus quo beginning in 171 B.C. While it is true that the interloper Millennius murdered the legitimate high priest Onius III in that year, there was no abridgment of the temple services at the early date. As you remember in Daniel, they didn't say the death of a priest. This is his commentary. It was not until the following year that Antiochus looted the temple of its treasure, and the abolition of the daily offering did not take place until 167. Okay, so this last paragraph down here is John Walverd, who holds Miller's position, but he's giving you his honest commentary about the position that he holds. Okay? Although the evidence available today does not offer fulfillment in the precise day, the 2300 days, obviously a round number, <laughs> is relatively accurate in wow. defining the period when the Jewish religion began to erode under the persecution of Antiochus and the period as a whole concluded with his death. Mm. Look, I want to tell you what's at stake and why we're doing this. If Antiochus, no matter how you take the 2300 days, did not fulfill the vision as Gabriel said, then it remains yet future. So wait, Antiochus defiled the temple and it was reconsecrated. Yes, but it doesn't match the time frame that the angel said. So oh, it's no problem because I never really bought into the Antiochus idea. I think it was about Titus and that's what Jesus was talking about. Well, yet there's another major problem. Mm -hmm. Because while Titus defiled the temple, he did not have it reconsecrated. In fact, it's still desolate today. That's a little longer than 2,300 days. Seventh-day Adventists fell into this error, and they were waiting, seeing it for 2,300 years, they thought. Uh, Jehovah's Witness fall into this error. It's important to understand the principles that we're talking about. And you may have thought that you agreed with them before you walked in. I promise you didn't know the Middle Eastern portion, and we're going to make that clearer as we go. And secondly, while you may think that you understand them, you couldn't present them. And that's why we're doing this, and it's why we're taking the time to go through it. Amen. Truthfully, when dealing with the sacred text, we're not comfortable with relatively accurate. And believe that a more humble approach would be to look at this portion of Daniel 8 as something that Antiochus foreshadowed, but did not fulfill. If the event is speaking of the future as Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul all indicated that it was, then it is a detail that will be fulfilled in the career of the coming Antichrist. You should be able to discern in the career of the Antichrist 2300 evenings and mornings. It seems to us that this particular chapter of Daniel is affected more than most by the interpreter's own predetermined eschatological framework. Yes, that's true. For instance, very few even consider the possibility that the Antichrist will rise from the Middle East because they were told to be sold on a Roman-European Antichrist model, and we think it causes them to miss what the text is actually saying. They assume that Daniel 7's little horn 
must be different than Daniel 8's small horn mm. because the little horn has to come from Rome. But as we argued earlier, what if that's not what the text is really saying at all? Oh, right. Well, then we would have legion of errors. What if Daniel 8's horn is exactly the same as Daniel 7? What if Daniel 8 only serves to help us identify the region that the Antichrist rises from and does not identify the nation just as Daniel 2 didn't identify the nation and Daniel 7 didn't identify the nation? Would you guys like to see a little bit of a linguistic study on Daniel 7 and Daniel 8? Yes. All right, so if you take a look at this slide, we're going to compare Daniel 7's little horn with Daniel 8's small horn. So in Daniel 7, 8, the little horn, it's in Aramaic. And I want you to hear how the pronunciation has it in Aramaic. It's Ze'erah. Daniel 8 in Hebrew presents the small horn pronounced Ze'erah. Do you hear a difference there? Not much. That is because Hebrew and Aramaic are cousin languages like Portuguese and Spanish, and the word is conjoined in its meaning. In fact, we have dictionaries under here, and both of them say that the word in Aramaic and Hebrew indicates small, little. They say in the Aramaic dictionary it indicates small, little. The Hebrew dictionary says something as little, small. I wonder why they felt the need to reverse the order. Different words. Totally different. Sure. Clearly. It couldn't be a predetermined bias that's causing that. You know, in both chapters, the horn could be described as either little or small in English because both of the original words mean both of those things. The only reason that we can think of that two different English words were chosen by the translators is a conscious or unconscious bias that was derived from a theological need to make a distinction. We do not see the need for any distinction. In fact... We believe both passages are describing an Antichrist leading the fourth beast and that the fourth beast rises out of the regional kingdoms of the Middle East. Oh my goodness. So in Daniel 7, your Bibles call him the little horn. In Daniel 8, he's called the small horn. But they're the same guy. We have a treat for you. We have a slide... That has side-by-side comparisons between Daniel 7, the little horn, and Daniel 8, the small horn. Look at these comparisons here. So the left column will be the attributes of the little horn in Daniel 7, and the right will be the attributes of the small horn in Daniel 8. So the little horn, Daniel 7, 8, came up from among them. The small horn, out of one of them came another horn. That's Daniel 8, 9. What about the second one? Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, Daniel 7, 11. In Daniel 8, 11, it describes him, set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. Sounds boastful. That's kind of boastful, isn't it? Look at the third one. Crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. Look at this. Surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. The same language is used between these two chapters. 
The fourth one, the horn that looked more imposing than the others. And in chapter 8, when rebels become completely wicked, a stern-faced king. You might be able to see some comparison there. The fifth one, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, Daniel 7.21. And the small horn in Daniel 8, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. Sounds like defeat, doesn't it? He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. Those are definitely synonymous. The sixth one. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment. And in Daniel 8.25, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Because it's by the Ancient of Days coming and pronouncing his judgment on him. And lastly, he will speak against the Most High, Daniel 7.25. And then Daniel 8.25, he will take his stand against the Prince of Princes, the Most High. Guys, we're somewhat passionate about this, and Peyton's going to pick up. And it's, it's because this was not our view one year ago. Right. Right. We didn't understand it because, like all Bible students, you simply hear a teaching. It starts to shape your framework, and then you spend the rest of your life mimicking the man who developed the teaching. It's true. Okay, this, this for us was revolutionary. We feel like we have solved a biblical difficulty that informs our future. And it really came from starting from a kind of tabula rasa blank slate (laughs) and going, if I didn't know anything that I think I know right now, where would we start? And uh, Peyton, why don't you pick up from here? Sure. Amen. While almost all interpreters acknowledge that these two horns are nearly identical, they then go to work at differentiating them. (laughs) The reasoning for this is that those same interpreters believe that Rome is the fourth kingdom that Daniel 7's little horn rises from. They are additionally mistaken in believing that the the small horn of Daniel 8 is from Greece. Mm. The little horn is not Greece. The super goat had four kingdoms, uh, had four kingdoms come from him that are distinct from each other and Greece. That's right. Out of one of the geographical regions they ruled will come the little horn or small horn. He is the ruler of the fourth beast, yeah. the fourth kingdom. Do y'all catch what that is? Yeah. 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 Daniel eight is obvious or Daniel seven is obviously the fourth kingdom. And the interpretation is that it is a little horn. Daniel 8, they have taken to be the third kingdom. But the text clearly says that four kingdoms come and then works to differentiate them from the goat that they were associated with. Mm -hmm. He's speaking about the fourth kingdom in both chapters at this point and the same person. And we haven't found a commentator anywhere that has noticed it. Not even some of our favorite commentaries. No, our favorite commentators are actually arguing completely different positions. Yeah, to summarize in a really brief fashion that would be easy to remember, Daniel 7 gives you an indication of what the fourth beast is going to look like. Daniel 8 indicates that it must come from the Middle East in one of those four regions. 
So if you believe that it's Rome, you have to make Daniel 8 about something else right. because it says the exactly. horn is coming from the Middle East. Right. Yeah. It's as simple as that and it's not more complicated. All of these problems are resolved in understanding that Daniel 8 identifies the Middle East as the region that the fourth beast leader will rise from at a future day. Both Daniel 7 and 8 are focused on the same figure, and this is clear if you read them without chapter breaks mm -hmm. and someone else telling you that they're separated. Yep. You may remember last week that each of the successive Gentile beastly kingdoms rose out of the sea. Yeah. Yeah. That was Daniel 7. Remember that? Yeah. 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 Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. We're not going to retread all of that ground for time's sake this evening. It is uh, 9.14. But our conclusion was that the sea represented the Gentile world after surveying the word, law, prophets, and writings all the way into the book of Revelation. Secondly, we suggested that the four winds of heaven may refer to the four spiritual entities over this region in the heavens. Tonight we believe we have a picture of the Gentile sea that the Antichrist will rise out of. Would you like to see it? Yeah! yeah. Do you want to see it? Yeah! yeah. yeah. On this next slide, <laughs> I want you to envision John is standing on the Isle of Patmos, which incidentally is Yavon. And he is looking in the direction of the temple where it used to stand, just like Daniel prayed towards the temple even when it wasn't standing. When you're looking at this picture, perhaps you would come to mind with John in prison on Patmos off the coast of Yavon, which is modern Turkey, and he's looking eastward towards the place where Daniel saw the vision. So he's looking beyond the temple to the very city that Daniel saw the vision in. The land that he is looking at between those two places is the sea that the Antichrist will rise from. Mm. Because the sea is actually Gentile peoples. Now with that in mind, it's just a thought. We wanted you to be able to engage this text. <laughs> Listen to Revelation 13 and see if you can pick out similarities with both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. You ready for it? Yeah. Yeah. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Are y'all paying attention? Yeah. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, Whoa. but had feet like those of a bear, bear. and a mouth like that of a lion. lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. It should be impossible for you to miss the fact that the beast John saw coming out of the sea of Gentile people this beast resembled a leopard, Greece, and the bear, Medo-Persia, and the lion, Babylon, 
Each of those nations were Middle Eastern empires, and so will the fourth beast be. Yes. The dragon gave the beast his power. I kind of think when you read Daniel 8.24, you'll see that that is exactly what is being described. But we need to keep reading. Verse 3. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. Wow. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter what? Proud words and blasphemies. And to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to what? To make war against the saints and to conquer them. Man, have we read any of these phrases before? Yes. (laughs) And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Look, we are not teaching on the book of Revelation this evening, but when you connect Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, they virtually form a biographical account of the beast that John sees. We definitely don't want to diminish anyone's perspective, but this seems obvious enough for a small child to discern. Mm -hmm. Of course, Children don't tend to have well-formulated and predetermined theological constructs that they approach the Word of God with, though. (laughs) Look, we want to keep moving through this chapter, but we feel compelled to give you just a sampling. Say sampling. Sampling. Of biblical predictions that imply a Middle Eastern Antichrist figure. You guys ready for just a sampling of some passages that look very clearly to be an Antichrist figure? From the Middle East? We're going to start in Micah chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. Man, that's an excellent conclusion to the story. Keep reading. And he will be their peace. Now, when the Assyrian, it doesn't say the Assyrians, it says the Assyrian, singular person. When the Assyrian invades our land, And marches through our fortresses. We will raise against him seven shepherds. Even eight leaders of men. So since this verse does not say when the Assyrians invade. But rather it's specific to one particular the Assyrian. This verse has been contemplated regarding the Antichrist for centuries. By the way. Little fact for you. This is speaking about the Seleucid region of the Middle East. Wow. What about verse 6 in the same passage? All right, Micah 5 6. 
They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. To reiterate what Pastor Nick said, since this verse does not say deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade, but rather specific to one particular Assyrian, he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land. This verse has been contemplated regarding the Antichrist for centuries. But by the way, this is the Seleucid region in the Middle East. Yeah. All right, one more for a sampling. Nahum 1.11. From you, O Nineveh, has come forth, come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This verse has also been contemplated for centuries concerning the Antichrist. By the way, it is also within the Seleucid region of the Middle East. Yeah. Turns out that the reason the verse puzzles commentators is solely because they cannot be applied to a European or specifically Roman Antichrist. Now, since we would love to go through passages about Gog and Magog with you, but time does not permit this particular evening. We'll just suggest that the same repeating pattern describing the same week in history is described throughout the prophets, and all of them are Middle Eastern-centric. Wow. And we pick up in verse 15, brother. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Look, we fear that some of you might be confused. And <laughs> we understand. After all, we're, we're still learning to teach these things. Uh, we're comforted by the fact that Daniel seems confused from the chapter. <laughs> And we just want to say that when you have the opportunity to listen to two angels having a conversation yeah. Yeah. that is explaining a biblical text, yeah. our suggestion is that you do what Daniel did. And in our final minutes, pay close attention. Yeah? yeah. The things that we've said are subject to review. They're subject to critical analysis. They're certainly subject to textual scrutiny. But the things that Gabriel says are simply right straightforwardly yeah. right yeah. and absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it worth your attention. Amen. Amen. Let's pick up in 17. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Well, that's enlightening, isn't it? Yeah. It, it concerns when? The time, time of, of the end. end. Now, to be fair, all of the vision was future to Daniel. But some of the vision was future to Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus, and Paul, as we demonstrated earlier. What this would mean is that the scope of Daniel's vision goes from the events immediately in his future all the way to the eschatological end. Yeah. And that point is going to be made three times by this angel. Mm. Yeah. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep. With my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. He says, will happen later in the time of wrath. Come on. This is an obvious reference to both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. And it concerns the final beastly kingdom with its blasphemous leader and the wrath 
he pours out on the saints. We're going to give you a couple scriptures. We're going to do this quickly and you're going to see this clearly. Daniel 7.21 verse 22 says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. So we have the little horn waging war against the saints and defeating them. This is the wrath that Gabriel is speaking about. Well, what about Daniel 7.25? He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. So the little horn here in this passage oppresses the saints. The saints are handed over to him. This is the wrath that Gabriel is speaking about. Well, what about Daniel 8.12? Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. Mm. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So in this passage, we have the host of the saints are given over to the small horn. And this is the wrath that Gabriel is speaking about. Well, what about Revelation 13, 6? It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Sounds like wrath. Yeah. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, that sounds wrathful. With the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So the time of the saints being conquered by the little horn or the small horn or the Antichrist is the time of wrath that Gabriel is speaking about. We're going to reread verse 19 so that you don't miss this next point. Verse 19 says, he said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So this is the second time Gabriel says that the vision concerns the time of the end. The question is, the end of what? Certainly not the second century BC, is it? No. 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 The answer is exactly what you think it is. It's the end of the eschatological plan. That's the answer to the question. So Gabriel is now going to walk us through a sequence of events that begin in Daniel's immediate future and they progress until the end of this time. Verse 20. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Hmm. Okay, so the four horns are four different kingdoms. They are not a unified empire. That's right. It's very important to understand. They do not have the strength of the super goat. They should be seen as four geographical divisions of the Middle East as a whole. You remember our map? Yes. It's divided in four geographical divisions. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids were the strongest 
and were often at war and in contention with each other. We have now transitioned from the super goat into four regional divisions that the fourth beast will rise from. Verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, mm -hmm. a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. Guys, this is the little horn, or the small horn, or whatever you would like to call it. <laughs> but it is not associated with Greece. He is only a king that is coming from one of the four geographical divisions within the Middle East, the yeah. Sea of Gentiles. Get verse 24 for me, Linton. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. Wow. Guys, did you catch that? Not by his own power? Yeah. The reason... Yeah, dragon. <laughs> the reason that the little horn of Daniel 7 and the small horn of Daniel 8 are able to wage war on the holy people and prevail is that the Antichrist is not acting on his own power. Revelation echoes this concept in 4K clarity. <laughs> this is Revelation 13, verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power huh. and his throne and his great authority. The verse goes on to say, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world at sea was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Guys, when you're thinking about the Antichrist, it's useful to think about the incarnation of Jesus and the fullness of the deity. Mm. After you've had that concept, apply it to the little horn and Satan. Wow. This is an anti-Messiah type that is deriving authority from another location, but is the embodiment of the dragon. Yeah. Wow. Why don't we go ahead and look at verse 25 together. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure. When they feel what? Secure. He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't rise by his own power. And he's not destroyed by normal human power. Right. And the time of these events is when people feel secure. Notice that it is when Israel feels secure that the small horn takes his stand against the prince of princes. That is because the time of Jacob's trouble begins with a covenant with death. We'll cover that in depth in Daniel 9. Wow. For now, we want to give you a few references for you to begin studying. You should read Isaiah 28, 14 through 16, because it says Israel will make a covenant with death, and what they really need to do is trust the cornerstone, yeah. the tried and precious stone. Yeah. The only hope for anyone during this period is that the trusted cornerstone would be their help. Jesus warned us about the atmosphere of false security yeah. in his time period. Yeah. You remember Matthew 24, 37 through 39? He tells us people are going to be eating and drinking and getting married. It would be like the day that Noah entered the ark and then destruction would come upon them. Right. It's when people feel secure in their self-governance of their own lives that the small horn betrays 
their trust. This will be a refining time for patient and enduring saints. The Apostle Paul understood Daniel very, very well. And I want you to see what he wrote as Justin reads it in 1 Thessalonians 5, because you have to ask yourself, where could Paul possibly have gleaned this information from? Exactly. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You see, just like Daniel 8 says, it is when they feel secure that the small horn will destroy many. He will destroy many. But let's reread verse 25 again for one more point on the verse. It says, he will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, Mm -hmm. he will destroy many and take his stand Mm -hmm. against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The phrase, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power, is directly connected to Daniel 2, Daniel 7, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Revelation 19. Just as the small horn does not rise by his own power, he also dies, but he also dies not by human power. Mm. So take a look at Daniel 2.34, and you're going to see this develop. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. The rock, Messiah, he will be the end of the small horn. Consider Daniel 2.44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Messiah's kingdom, from Daniel 2.44, it will bring an end to the small horn. What about Daniel 7.21 and 22? One small interjection as he reads this. Can't be Antiochus because Messiah didn't destroy him. Cannot be Titus because Messiah did not destroy him. These are patterns that are unfailing in history. Great point. Daniel 7, 21 and 22 says, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Guys, it is the Ancient of Days that brings an end to this little horn. And who did you learn the Ancient of Days is last week? Jesus. Jesus. Well, on that, listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. For But the one who now holds it, holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth there it is. and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Yeah. Listen, the little horn, small horn, or antichrist will be destroyed by Jesus himself. Yeah. Ask yourself how Paul knew this, if it's not what Daniel is talking about. Yeah. 
Paul understood what we are advocating for, and his thought theology shows that he understood it by reading the book of Daniel. Yeah. By the way, John did too. Listen to Revelation 19, 19. So as we pick up in Revelation 19, 19, you have to keep in your mind dying of a natural cause, being struck down by a man, is not fulfilling Jesus destroying him with the breath of his mouth. Right. Yeah, exactly. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Come on. Yeah. Guys, if you don't understand why we are saying that John understood this from the book of Daniel, as well as his vision, perhaps we should refresh your memory with Daniel 7, 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. Seems very much like John is expanding on what Daniel said. We've gone on a journey of discovery together. We know that at the time that we act like these things are obvious, that, that we do that, you could start to get the idea that these chapters are easy for us. I want you to know that's really not true. No. I've I, I studied ten times more than I slept this week <laughs> and last week and the week before that. The truth is that we've spent many years vigorously debating amongst ourselves yep. and then repenting yeah. amongst ourselves oh, yeah. and then praying with each other and ultimately going back to the good father and asking him for help. Yeah. With that said, did that feel nice? We really don't know how it's possible that you could misunderstand the next verse. <laughs> verse 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. Wow. But what kind of future? Distant. distant. See, not only have we shown you that this did not occur in history, but also the angel Gabriel has now said for the third time... That it is in the future. But he adds a modifier. The distant future. In other words, far closer to the end than Daniel's own day. Yeah. I want to show you this slide. Daniel's immediate future to end of days. In Daniel 8.17, as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. In Daniel 8.19, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. And in Daniel 8.26, which we read, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. You see, every detail in Daniel 8 was a future event to Daniel. The Medo-Persian Empire had not yet taken overtaken Babylon. The Greek empire didn't even exist. The four regional kingdoms following Alexander were hundreds of years in the future. And as the chapter progressed in verse 19, we reached specific markers that are still in our future. Verse 26 couldn't be any more clear. 
the fulfillment of the process involving 2,300 days concerns the end of the age. It is hard to argue for historical fulfillment when Gabriel says this, the, these things three times, yeah. isn't it? That's right. Let's move on to verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. <laughs> we understand. <laughs> Maybe you have kidney stones. <laughs> then I got up and went about the king's business. Amen. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. <laughs> well, we, uh, we certainly didn't actually have the same visions that Daniel had this week. We didn't have those, but we certainly were swimming in them for many, many hours. And like Daniel, we're also pretty exhausted after our studies. <laughs> but these studies have been the best thing that has ever happened to us. Amen. Amen. And we're really, really excited and appreciative of your interest in them and the way that you guys have seriously engaged with us tonight uh, on new levels. Uh, we're so excited and we're spurred on by your level of study as a church. But like Daniel, now is about the time where we need to go get some sleep so that we can wake up in the morning and get on with the king's business. You know, many of the things in the vision are appalling. They're beyond understanding without the help of the Spirit of God. And even then, we must remain pliable in our conclusions. Yeah. However, the only right response is to continually search back and forth, to and fro, in the text, over and over and over again, as we ask the Lord to increase each of our understandings. Amen. I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Matt now. So I'm going to put up John chapter 16 and verse 12. We'll read through 14. Can you imagine being Daniel, standing there, having an angel reveal to you the details of the distant future? I'm telling you what you received tonight is monumental. Realize everything they just shared with you was not derived from other men's commentary. It was derived from their own wrestling with the truth of God's word and it being revealed to them. What's spoken here in John 17 is true about what we experience tonight. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. Amen. What we glean here tonight is a greater understanding of what is yet to come. Did you, did you experience as we went through this Something that was complex now, you're able to see in clearer fashion. It's made more plain. (laughs) Treasure what these men have labored for hours to make plain to you. Treasure them by revisiting them often. 
Treasure them by seeing God's workmanship and His Spirit breathing upon you to understand these complexities. That what Gabriel was speaking to Daniel was about his immediate future and the progress to the end of time. What was yet to come. And here we sit now in 2022 and get the opportunity to have his spirit reveal that to us. Thank you. As we get ready to pray together and close, you can treat tonight in one of two different ways. You could be so overwhelmingly full that you want to push back from the table, promising that you'll never eat again, but knowing that you'll do it again the next morning. Or you can actually allow it to cause a hunger and a thirst in you in a new way. There are things that I know that my family and I are going to be going over because this is causing a hunger and a thirst in me in a special kind of way. Hope that you guys will join us in this. The, the very first scripture of the evening was Daniel 12, 4. And this is the attitude that we're going to go into our prayer time that we're going to have. But you, LCM, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there. We'll go to and fro. We're going to get back into the word and go to and fro so that God may continue to increase the knowledge of not just these fine men and these incredible ministers of the gospel, but he'll increase the knowledge that we have that affect our everyday life. Amen? Amen. Mighty God, we love you. God, we honor you. We thank you for the beauty and the majesty of your word. Lord, we thank you for the incredible and special revelation that you've given to this body of believers. Lord, may we go to and fro in your word. Lord, valuing and honoring the word that has come to us, the feast that was prepared, Lord, may it cause a hunger to grow inside of us that we might take the teaching that we've received tonight and honor you by delving into it even deeper and making sure that it becomes part of us, Lord, part of the increase of knowledge that we have as a church. Lord, we honor you. Thank you for this special time. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.